Welcome to Lost in the Supermarket, the podcast that goes behind the shelves with a look at the latest grocery trends, the latest health information, and how to make every shopping trip the best it can be for every shopper. I'm Phil Lempert, and on today's podcast, we talk about food intolerance, an issue that impacts about 20% of the people around the globe. Our guest today is Kate Scarlotta registered and licensed dietitian with 30 years experience providing nutrition consultation to patients with irritable bowel syndrome, celiac disease, and inflammatory bowel disease. She's considered a global expert in the low FODMAP diet and food intolerance. Kate is a New York Times bestselling author for her co-authored book, 21 Day Tummy Diet, author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Eating Well, Something I Need to Read, with IBS, and co-author of the Low FODMAP Diet Step-by-Step. She was awarded the Outstanding Dietitian of the Year by the Massachusetts Dietetic Association and voted Boston's Best Dietitian Award by Boston Magazine. It's a pleasure. Kate, welcome to Lost in the Supermarket. Thank you so much for having me on, Phil. So, Kate, I guess the first step is what's the difference between a food intolerance and a food allergy? So both food intolerance and food allergies involve adverse reactions to food. Um, A food allergy involves the immune system, while a food intolerance would not involve the immune system. It's a non-immune mediated reaction. The other important thing about food allergy versus food intolerance is that a food allergy can be life-threatening. While food intolerance is not life-threatening, it certainly can impact someone's quality of life. It's just uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Absolutely. So what I'm hearing from a lot of consumers, and I don't know whether this is real or not, so I need you to help me, is that a lot of them are saying that they're intolerant to dairy. What, what's the real truth about dairy intolerances? That's a really uh, complex question. And I think a lot of people believe they're dairy intolerant just because of a lot of the social media and pseudoscience (laughs) platforms. That dairy intolerance is not quite as prevalent as some sites would like you to believe. Lactose intolerance is fairly common. um, And that is when um, an individual has a reduction in the, the enzyme lactase as such, they can't break down that lactose, the milk sugar in, in cow's milk and, and really sheep, a, a number of different mammals. Um, and they're unable to digest that. And that can trigger gas and bloating and dige- digestive distress. Dairy allergy is absolutely, you know, milk is a top allergen, but it's not that common overall. So um, I think that there are people that believe they have dairy intolerance, but don't really have dairy intolerance. And then also what's kind of part of this conversation is there's different types of protein in milk. So when we think about allergies, it's the protein in, in a food that prompts a food allergy, where in intolerances, it's often the carbohydrate. It can also be the protein, but sometimes hmm. it's the carbohydrate. So that's a little bit of a differential. There is different types of beta casein in milk. So if you look at cow's milk, it, uh, ordinary cow's milk often has a combination of A1 and A2 beta casein, where sheep right. and goat's milk only has A2 
beta casein. So part of this conversation around dairy intolerance um, in my patient population, I'll have an individual, for instance, that comes to my office, is intolerant to lactose-free dairy, is seemingly intolerant to all types of dairy, and then we'll explore the possibility that maybe their intolerance is more related to this beta casein, which makes up about 30% of the protein in milk. And so there is, um, I'll either start them with goat cheese to try to see if they can tolerate goat cheese. There's also a new product relatively new to the U.S. market, A2 milk that they could try. So we might incorporate some um, just A2 milk products um, or cheeses, goat and sheep cheese, again, only have that A2 beta casein to see if it's more of a beta casein intolerance than, in fact, a full dairy intolerance. Gotcha. So um, help me help me understand the difference between intolerance and malabsorption as it relates to milk and dairy as well. Great question, because I think a lot of even health professionals think of someone having lactose malabsorption, for instance, means they have lactose intolerance, and they're very different. So you can malabsorb lactose, and a lot of people do, because the enzyme, that lactase enzyme production tends to decline after we wean from the bottle as an infant. And so people will malabsorb lactose, but not necessarily be symptomatic. So they have no symptoms. In that case, they just go about their business. They don't even know they're really malabsorbing lactose. Hmm. Those that malabsorb lactose, subset of them have lactose intolerance. And those are the people that malabsorb lactose, but also become quite symptomatic after they ingest lactose. So it's different. The intolerance means you're having, you have symptoms where malabsorption can occur and you don't even know that that's happening. So we see that in lactose. We also see that in fructose malabsorption. So fructose Unlike lactose, requ lactose requires an enzyme to help your body digest it. Fructose is a one-chain sugar. It doesn't require an enzyme. But some of us don't have a lot of transporters that, to get that fructose into our bloodstream. And so the extra fructose can get into our, our colon where it pulls a lot of water in. Bacteria will eat that fructose. And in some people, not all, probably dependent somewhat on the sensitivity of their intestine, how fast their intestine moves, what type of bugs live in their intestine. Some of those individuals will have fructose intolerance, and so they'll experience um, symptoms. So it is very individual, and it, malabsorption and intolerance truly do mean something different. And what this discussion really underscores for me in addition to all the great information that you just shared, is that forget about going to websites, forget about Googling. You know, if you've got these kind of conditions, you've got to be talking to a registered dietitian such as yourself, because these are very complicated issues. This is not something you can Google and then figure out yourself. Absolutely. And we certainly don't want people, for instance, to feel that using the milk as an example, well, I don't tolerate milk, so that's it. When we could explore trying A2 milk, we could explore trying lactose-free products. You know, there's lots of different options here. So we don't want, for instance, in the dairy discussion, 
we know that milk has calcium and protein mm-hmm. and riboflavin and a number of B vitamins. We don't want them removing all of that. You know, that's good stuff. Diet. That's good, good stuff. stuff. We want that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So I, I've also heard a lot in the past few years about irritable bowel syndrome. In looking it up, it actually impacts about one in seven Americans. What exactly is, you know, irritable bowel syndrome and why should we be concerned? So irritable bowel syndrome, we should be concerned, and I think as a provider for many of these patients, is it is can be quite debilitating. Um, I, I cite this study often because I think it's really important for, for all of us to hear. Um, there was one study done looking at about 2,000 individuals with irritable bowel syndrome, and it was assessing their quality of life. And in that study, they found that people with irritable bowel syndrome were willing to give up 25% of of their remaining life for a symptom cure, something that would give them symptom relief, 25%. So this is, you know, it's, it may be not cancer. It's, it doesn't sound like something very dramatic, but it really does impact people's quality of life. Absolutely. So, so we need to pay attention to those TV commercials. We do. And really, maybe those individuals in your life that could use a little TLC. Yeah. But um, to answer your question, it's it's a GI motility disorder. Um, people with IBS really have a heightened sense of uh, pain or sensations in their intestines. So they're more sensitive to gas in their intestines. Someone might eat a bowl of chili that does not have IBS and feel fine. They might pass a little more gas the next day, mm-hmm. where someone with IBS could be really troubled for the next couple of days, maybe be in bed with a heating pad. Um, the pain is quite debilitating. So it's, um, although the name sounds like it might not be that serious a condition, it really can be a life-stopping really condition. Wow. Um, so in, in going up and down the aisles at various trade shows, food trade shows, I see a lot of discussion and a lot of signs about FODMAP. What's the FODMAP diet? And is this something that's a fad or a trend? Should we pay attention to this? I would say absolutely pay attention to this. Um, It is a very um, therapeutic diet for people with IBS. In fact, and I'll backtrack with what a FODMAP is and what the diet is in just a second, but the low FODMAP diet's been shown to manage symptoms, debilitating symptoms of IBS in 50 to 80% of people that try the Mm. diet. So it's quite effective. Um, The word FODMAP is an acronym and it stands for fermentable. So these are carbohydrates that are small carbohydrates that are highly fermentable by our our gut bacteria and they create gas. And then the O, D, M, and P stand for different types of carbohydrates that are commonly malabsorbed. And I'm going to give you the scientific name, but promise you don't have to remember it. (laughs) So O is oligosaccharides. The uh, foods that have oligosaccharides include onion and garlic and wheat primarily. D is disaccharide, which is referring to lactose, which is a two-chain sugar. Uh, the M in FODMAP is monosaccharide, which is a one-chain sugar referring to fructose. And then the P in FODMAPs refers to polyols, which are sugar alcohols that are found naturally in some foods like cauliflower and stone fruits such as peaches and plums. 
but also in a lot of sugar-free gum and mints and products such as that. Got it. I want to go back to intolerance for, for a moment. Um, I've also read about histamine intolerances and, you know, other intolerances that, that are out there like sucrose intolerance. You, you talked a little bit about fructose intolerance earlier. Um, how important or prevalent are those intolerances uh, for the average person? And again, is this something that people should be aware of? How can they determine if they've got these intolerances? Is it just eating a food and, and feeling weird after eating it? You know, I think the sucrose intolerance is somewhat new as far as an adult intolerance. We've, we've, there's congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency that we see in children. And that's a condition where the enzyme complex Sucrase isomaltase, which helps digest sugar as well as starches, is decreased just from a genetic condition. Mm -hmm. um, but we weren't really recognizing the same condition in adults until recently. And so now it's sort of termed genetic sucrase isomaltase deficiency. And they're finding in people that present with irritable bowel syndrome symptoms that tend to be more diarrhea predominant that sucrase isomaltase deficiency may be playing a role. And there are supplements and dietary modifications that can help those patients as well. So this is an emerging area in the adult population, very new, um, but I think that we're gonna see more and more about that. Histamine intolerance has been around and probably more well-researched in the European scientific literature than here. Um, but we're, it's, it's getting some traction at the research conferences. I don't think it's quite ready for the grocery store dietitian um, or that we're going to see low histamine products emerging on the markets in the next year or two. But I do think it's part of the discussion. And histamine intolerance is unique in the sense that it presents with a number of different types of uh, symptoms. It can be from headaches to low blood pressure to hives to um, flushing of the skin. And they're so variable that it does take people that are diagnosed with histamine intolerance generally a, quite a long time, up to 10 years, hmm. to get that final diagnosis. Yeah. Um, but one thing to know, um, similar to lactose and sucrose intolerance, there is an enzyme that helps individuals degrade histamine. It's called diamine oxidase. And some people can have a reduction in this enzyme after they've experienced gastroenteritis or a foodborne like illness that affects the gut and maybe causes a little inflammation. Um, so I would say the in adults, the sucrase isomaltase deficiency that might lead to sucrose intolerance and histamine intolerance are just emerging as a little getting some traction and awareness so stay tuned and, and watch that space but they're not ready for prime time really i don't think in the grocery store yet so kate in, in listening to this wealth of information that you've got 
I've got to wonder that now that I'm seeing a lot of these DNA kits that are available for consumers from a health standpoint, to really talk about the genetics that, that you mentioned a moment or so ago, is this a good idea for people to go out to get these DNA kits, to really look to see whether or not they have a predisposition genetically to, to some of these allergens, uh, to some of these intolerances? I'm not sure that we're really quite there yet. For instance, in some of the genetic testing, for instance, for celiac disease, which is an autoimmune mm -hmm. um, condition um, where gluten, you can't tolerate gluten, some of these genetic tests will test a number of the different ends, uh, genetic uh, markers for celiac disease, but they don't often include all of them. Oh. So you might get that test and say, geez, I have no genetic markers for celiac disease, I'm good to go, and kind of rule that out. In fact, that happened recently. I worked with a dietitian colleague's husband, actually, and they had used one of those tests to rule out celiac disease. And I said, no, 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 you need to go and have it done properly at the doctor's office and come to find out he does have genetic markers, and now we're having him assessed for celiac disease. Where they had ruled it out based on some of these tests. So I would hmm. say the tests miss a few things, um, but it is emerging. And I think we are going to start seeing uh, this whole genetic conversation come into play at our primary care doctor and our GI doctors coming soon. It, it's, it's almost ready for prime time. And certainly we're using genetics um, to look at sucrase isomaltase deficiency, um, and that's starting to happen in GI offices around the country. Um, and we're certainly doing genetic markers for celiac disease regularly these days. So it's happening and it will continue to increase in other areas, I imagine. But these kits are not a replacement for Kate. They're not a replacement <laughs> for, for, for the physician. So I'm not really ordering these, but I'll yeah. take that. I'll take okay. that yeah, for me. Yeah, they're not a replacement for let, let's go back into the supermarket. You mentioned early on A2 milk. I had, I had tasted, and, and we actually did a taste test um, and a product evaluation of A2 milk when it first came out. And frankly, we gave it rave reviews. What's been your experience with A2 milk as it relates to your clients? In those that I tried it, it worked 100% of the time. So, and I have friends that have tried it that have cannot do dairy whatsoever, but can do A2 milk. So in the select person that perceives, you know, digestive symptoms after dairy, it's worth a try. It absolutely is worth a try, especially, and of course, you want to make sure that they don't have a dairy allergy. I mean, it's 100% dairy. There's, it's delicious. There's nothing altered about it. They've just selected the cows that only make A2. So, you know, you shouldn't be surprised that it's a lovely product because milk is a lovely product and um, there's nothing altered about A2. You know, I just want to go back and, and underscore the point that you just made. This is not milk that has been altered or filtered or anything added to it. They're just finding cows that have the A2 protein without the A1 protein. Am I understanding that correct? That's correct. How does A2 milk actually determine which cows have the A2 protein versus cows that have both proteins? So it's really interesting. This is done using a simple and non-invasive DNA test, 
which analyzes a sample hair from the tail of each dairy cow. Well, <laughs> I know. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, very cool. So they also, um, in addition to testing all the cows to confirm they are A2 producing cows, they also test each batch of milk to confirm that no A1 protein is detected. So there's sort of a dual uh, process in place. So last question, what would you like retailers and retail dietitians to be doing in store to help shoppers that have food allergies, food intolerances, all the things that we've talked about um, in order to make their food experiences and their lives better? Well, I think, you know, what helps with a lot of patients coming into the grocery store is to have either dedicated sections of the, of the grocery store or even printed handouts where they can find foods that are low in lactose or low in FODMAPs. Do they have products that have certification on them, for instance? Um, for instance, in the FODMAP realm, uh, there's two certification programs that certify something as low FODMAP. So if a, a shopper came in and they saw those certification stamps on the food, such as we see it gluten-free, it gives them that assurance. Perhaps having signage that says, you know, um, you know, digestive friendly or, you know, just to kind of direct them to where they should be going. The grocery store has so many products and it can be really overwhelming. Um, having a dietitian, of course, on staff that can help them that have an awareness of these various food intolerances can be very helpful and any handouts that they could provide individuals so that they could um, assess what types of products, um, specialty products for their particular food intolerance that the store carries. All of those things can be really quite helpful. Well, Kate, thanks so much for joining us today. You're, you're a pleasure. You know, want to have you back uh, whenever you want to come back. In the meantime, if people want more information, whether they be a registered dietitian, a retail dietitian, or a consumer about you and about A2 Milk, where can they go? Well, first and foremost, they can come to my website, katescarlotta.com. That's K-A-T-E-S-C-A-R-L-A-T-A. -A -A. Um, for consumers, go to a2milk.com and for health professionals, go to a2nutrition, the number four professionals.com. So a2nutrition for professionals.com. Great. Well, Kate, thanks again for joining us today. I'm lost in the supermarket. <laughs>